This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's a bombshell that dropped late last night. Patrick Brown, as you heard in Bob's News, has been disqualified from the conservative leadership race for unspecified election financing violations. The Brown campaign is consulting their lawyers and fighting back. They say they've done nothing wrong. The Charest campaign has also weighed in, saying there has to be full transparency regarding both the allegations and the Brown's team's response, which party officials rejected. The accusations have been out there for months, and they came from the rival Poilievre camp, and that's what Brown's people say this is all about. One thing is certain, this is bad for conservatives trying to position themselves as the government in waiting. And people, I would like to know what you think. What do you make of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome John McCutishan, campaign manager for Patrick Brown, Michael Diamond, campaign, uh, uh, sorry, upstream man- strategy group, and Bob Richardson, a liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi. Hello. Let us, we'll begin with Michael Diamond. Uh, you heard Patrick Brown on uh, that clip in the news saying he did nothing wrong, and this is all about Pierre Poilievre trying to get rid of him. What's your response to that? Look, I think uh, I, I certainly agree with the position that uh, Mr. Soray took, uh, you know, the disqualifying a candidate for the leadership of a party should only happen in very, very extreme and rare circumstances, and it must be done with full accountability and transparency. So if uh, Ian Brody and Leoc felt that there was cause to remove Mr. Brown from the campaign, and they obviously did because they took that uh, fairly extreme step, uh, they ought to put out exactly what the findings were that led to the conclusion that it was best for the party and the proper course of action to remove him from the race. So uh, I'm not going to doubt their uh, conclusion because you know, they deliberated it. I did not. But they ought to for both their reputations and the good of the party and in fairness to Mr. Brown, Mayor Brown as well, put out the cause of this decision. Uh, Michael, before we move along, I gather you are a supporter of Pierre Poilievre. No, I'm actually uh, uh, neutral on the race. I will vote. Uh, you know, I, I consider Mr. Brown a friend. I consider um, Mr. Polyev's wife a friend. I, I have friends working on uh, various campaigns, so uh, still unsure how I'll uh, cast my ballot, uh, but uh, I am not uh, active on any campaign. Okay. John McCutishan, campaign manager. So uh, was this a total surprise? We have been hearing allegations, again, coming from the Poilievre camp uh, uh, about irregularities. Was this move a a surprise, a shock? Um, The underhanded, unsubstantiated, uh, hateful attacks by Pierre Poilievre's campaign were not a shock. 
they've been pretty much uh, running, a, and, and as we now have uh, the numbers on how many people in each riding, um, you know, uh, other people are going to roll out that information to show just how much they've been lying to people. Uh, so, so the attacks, no, not a surprise. Uh, the fact that, uh, people, uh, gave them to the party and the, how the party acted in this is the, is not a surprise. It's a shock. Um, at no time were we ever told you're being accused by this person of this violation that never happened. So, um, I was very pleased to hear what Michael just had to say. Because we would agree completely. What's the accusation? We still don't know. There, there's some nefarious kind of thing that says we think you violated election uh, elections Canada rules, but no evidence was ever presented to us to be able to respond to. So if you look at uh, you know what goes on in Canada, it's almost like a, a police officer pulls you over and takes you to jail and says, no, no, we're just going to put you in for a couple of years. For, forget uh, an actual charge, forget an actual uh, trial, forget an actual jury. Uh, this, this is actually abhorrent that this can even exist in the Conservative Party. And uh, I got to tell you, first, we're in shock. Secondly, we're looking at everything that we can do to respond to this late night attack. We didn't even know they were having a meeting about this yesterday. We weren't invited. And and again, uh, no opportunity to reply within the party to any accusation. They said uh, they said that they have given you ample opportunity to respond to these allegations. Are you saying they're lying about that? Absolutely. One hundred percent. To respond to an allegation, you have to have one made clearly so you know what they're talking about. When someone says, to "Was you, there sorry? Was said, there an unclear al- allegation that they?" Yeah, they they said to us. Well, they came to us on a, on a variety of things. Uh, last week, we got accused of they they actually in their uh, uh, latest letter reply to us said we had seventy eight envelopes that were delivered to uh, the party headquarters with money orders uh, from Canada Post, which are not accepted. They have to be from a bank, and they had three hundred uh, memberships in those envelopes. And we believe they're yours because we've compared the writing to one of your supporters, the handwriting. That's like, what? And they actually named the individual. We believe that they're racially profiling. We believe, uh, based on the contents and the person they pointed a finger to, that person we can, we had a conversation with. They've never sent any, absolutely one of our best recruiters, but they didn't send the one single membership that Canada Post because frankly, we haven't trusted the party from day one. Anything that that person sent went by courier to an office in Ottawa and walked in the door so we would have a person able to testify to their delivery. So they've, they've been stacking up all sorts of crazy uh, questions and coming from an unclear place. Bob Richardson, liberals must be very happy looking at this. Well, my friend Warren Kinsella says in a column today that uh, governments defeat themselves, but nobody is as good at defeating themselves as Tories. And uh, I did chuckle a little when I when I, when I read that. Look, I have no uh, pony in this race, but um, something doesn't uh, sit right here for me. There seems to be a huge lack of due process here. It's got a kangaroo court kind of feel to it. Uh, it comes out late at night. There's no spokesman. There's no opportunity for questioning. 
apparently, it wasn't even a unanimous uh, decision. We don't know if that is true or not, but that is that's what's being said. The other thing that bothers me about this is I've been hearing rumors about this from days from multiple supporters of Mr. Polyev. That makes me, uh, again, uncomfortable from a due process point of view that uh, one candidate's uh, people uh, seemed to know exactly what was going on. I think this is bad. This isn't just this doesn't just damage the conservative brand, which is which is bad for them. I think it hurts politics. I think it makes it look like circus. It makes it look unfair. And I think it makes it look unaccountable. And I uh, and one other thing that is going to happen as a result of this, and I don't think uh, certain uh, campaigns have thought this through, um, I think it's going to damage Mr. Polyev, and I think it will taint his leadership. Uh, there's a very good chance he could have won this leadership in his own right, you know, in a multi-candidate race. Now uh, I think people are going to look askance at his leadership a little uh, should he win, um, given uh, given the way that it's been handled. Uh- Michael Diamond, what is up with uh, the leadership organizing committee, the the party? All of this is making it sound like they're somehow in league with the Polly Everkamp. Wouldn't they be impartial? I mean, Ian Brody, the chair, used to be chief of staff to oh, Stephen Harper. I think they're absolutely impartial, and I think Ian Brody is a is a fine, fine gentleman, and I, I think, but. Uh, with the lack of disclosure, uh, imaginations can run wild. So I think it's imperative that they put out exactly why they reach this conclusion, and and, and, and and that would settle a lot of the dust. So I think if they were to do that, I have full confidence that they probably made a decision that uh, there's there's merits to having made. But until such time that they actually put out uh, what the decision was based on, of course, you know, conspiracy theories are going to run wild and imaginations are going to run wild. I've worked on several uh, leadership campaigns in uh, various provinces and uh, in the Conservative Party of Canada. And I will say one thing. Every leadership campaign at a certain point will think that the party apparatus is against them. Front runners, challengers, everyone. And it's usually just that, uh, you know, if, if, if every campaign doesn't reach that conclusion, I think uh, the uh, party isn't doing their job. So I don't think this is about Pierre Polyev, frankly. This is about Patrick Brown's campaign. It's about uh, the leadership organizing committee. Uh, you know, I, my, my understanding is the, the complaint didn't come from the Polyev campaign. Uh, so I, I, I just think, you know, we wouldn't have to have this conversation if the Conservative Party of Canada Leadership Organizing Committee put out their findings and their rationale for doing this, I'm sure when they do or if they were to do so, it would all seem much more reasonable than it does with the absence of information. And do you have any kind of theory about why they did it in this way? You know, I, I don't. But if you look at the beginning of the campaign, uh, there were a couple candidates who didn't meet the threshold to to, to run for various reasons: incomplete, uh, uh, incomplete uh, paperwork, lack of the uh, requisite uh, number of uh, signatures uh, to make the ballot. And at first, they didn't put it out. Uh, put out the rationale. They just you know, said that they didn't. Uh, they they went from being, you know, I believe it was potential to not getting the approval to be a candidate, and they didn't. They didn't put out the rationale. One of the candidates put out a op-ed. Uh, attacking the party, and then they then they came to the table and explained, you know, no, the paperwork wasn't complete, or the the deposit check wasn't proper, et cetera, et cetera. But it was again a delay, and it seems almost like an own goal, you know, throw everything out at the beginning so people understand uh, the process uh, that was followed and uh, why the conclusions that were reached are valid. Uh, 
John McCutcheon, do you want to respond to that? Yeah. Um, look, I, I can tell you that before my involvement, because uh, uh, I just took over this spot a couple weeks ago. So um, when I had my first meeting at that point in time, because uh, uh, there was a weekly call each of the campaigns has with the party uh, to go over whatever the issues of the week are, that I had the highest esteem for everybody involved in the process. And I can tell you that if you were to look at the facts of how they've handled this, uh, kangaroo court is way too nice. There has been no due process, no consideration. And what I can tell you is absolutely in our conversations, look, the party had a meeting last Thursday at one o'clock when they were going to release the list at six o'clock to the campaigns. At one o'clock, they had a technical briefing for the media and the campaigns. And at, at that end of the two o'clock and at two ten, we get a letter saying, we're our latest letter still not satisfied with the answers you've been giving us. And here's uh, for icing on the cake. We're not going to give you the list. Wow. And you know why they wouldn't give us the list? Because Patrick Brown has been saying when anybody's asked him about his future, he's in this to win it. And he wanted to get the list and see what his chances were so that he'd be able to know where the members are and where his supporters are. And by denying him that list, they couldn't, he couldn't make that decision. And there's only one reason for that, that he has a path forward. He has a way to win. And at the end of the day, I believe it's been done in the name of one candidate. And if I'm the prime minister, I'm thinking, you know what? September 10th, the conservatives have a new leader. September, uh, you know, 24th is a good time to call an election. <laughs> Michael Diamond, uh, what do you think of that explanation? Again, until such time, that's why it's such a mistake uh, for the party to not be completely open and transparent about the process and their findings. Because until such time, anyone can literally say anything. And in the absence of uh, clarity and information, it, it seems plausible and believable. So, you know, uh, again, you know, this is uh, to me incredibly simple, as Jean Charest's campaign has called for. Let the members know. It's the members' party. The members are the owners of this organization. Let the members know why this conclusion was reached. I'm guessing when they eventually do this, because let's just jump to the natural conclusion, as they did with the candidates who didn't make the ballots in the first place or didn't make the qualification round uh, uh, in, in the first place. Eventually, they told us why they weren't uh, going to make it. They're going to do it this time, and I bet it's all going to seem perfectly reasonable. But until such time, uh, imaginations will run wild and speculation will not be helpful to uh, anyone, particularly uh, the, the, the people who made this decision. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again. Uh, people, uh, what do you make of this? I know there are a lot of people in our audience who uh, thinks it is time for the current liberal government to go. And they're, you know, by the standards of Canadian governments, they are past their best before date. So what does this do to anything that you see in that? Uh, you know, a lot of people have always seen conservatives as an alternative to liberals. Uh, that's sort of the way our system goes, even though the liberals are usually in power longer. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Bob Richardson, 
Do you think there's any chance of that kind of an early election, despite that, uh, you know, the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP? I don't think there's any chance of an early uh, election at all. I think we'll be running for another two years. I think the government will run a full uh, full term. Uh, there's no uh, there's no pressure uh, to uh, to do so otherwise. And um, as uh, my other two friends on the panel can tell you, uh, every day in government is a better day than uh, a day in opposition. So I don't think uh, I don't think the Liberals will be looking to run out um to uh to uh call an election anytime soon and nor do canadians want them to call an election anytime soon uh most people are quite supportive of the president arrangement and uh and we'll uh, we'll let that play play out and we'll see where we end up uh at the end of that process but uh i would say most canadians are okay with that and uh and that's probably that's probably a good thing because from what we can see right now at least one of the other major parties really needs to get its act together uh, over the next period of time before uh, before we go see the people again. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how's everyone today? Fine, go ahead, you're on the air. Okay, I'm not really surprised by this at all. I mean, considering that this is the party that uh, a couple years ago had membership drives and took the money, and then uh, the members elected what they thought was going to be the leader of the party, and then after the election, the caucus that rode the leader's coattails into office dumps them. So it doesn't seem to surprise me. That doesn't seem You're to be talking much. about Aaron O'Toole, and uh, yeah. there are a lot of people, and we've been talking to them, who think that the way he was uh, gotten rid of is kind of uh, unseemly, uh, at the very least. Well, as I said, I, I just don't understand this, this particular bill, which the, only the Conservatives have adopted, that lets the caucus change the membership. I mean, they've just taken in $9 million in membership fees. And uh, these members are supposed to elect a, a leader, but, but there's no reason that they won't just turn around and do the same thing, ignoring the membership. Hmm. Okay, thanks for that. Okay. Let's go to Anthony in Niagara Falls. Hello, Anthony. Hi there. Yeah, I, I don't uh, trust uh, Brown at all. Um, I really believe Paul is the only one that's going to save Canada. That's all I can tell you. Okay, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh Saving Canada isn't quite the question here. We're talking about a fair and democratic election in a political party, which is uh, quite a different story. John, do you agree that this hurts the whole process? Absolutely. And I agree with my uh, colleagues that any time mud is thrown at any political party, the entire process is hurt. And that could have been avoided uh, from day one, if there had been transparency. And look, uh, Ian Brody and the people in the party that are running this process are not uh, uneducated boobs. For them to have a process where you don't face your accuser, you don't have the specific allegation, is not a mistake. It's an intentional process that they put in place to act in this manner. And I think conservatives are waking up or woke up today uh, shocked at what's going on. And uh, where Michael said one potential outcome, the other outcome potentially is where does this go? Where do we go for remedy? Uh, is there a place? Is it the National Council? Is it is it uh, somehow the, the party comes to its senses? Or does we have to go aside for mediation to uh, 
have somebody else tell the party that you're not allowed to actually act in this manner. Uh, you know, there's more fallout from this, and that is in Brampton. And you have two factions in council, and both uh, making very big accusations against uh, each other. There are uh, some deputy mayors who are saying that the that pa- the mayor Patrick Brown is. Uh, guilty of some uh, allegations of financial appropriation. He's saying it has all been cleared by Deloitte and that one of one of the counselors making the allegations is uh, under investigation or was under investigation for sexual harassment. Uh, So it's like um, the mud seems to be going beyond the provincial level. Michael, what do you make of that? Well, look, I mean, one one thing that's been very curious to me is just like I think the parties made a mistake in not coming out, it's my understanding that Mayor Brown canceled a council meeting today, which I think is, you know, equally yeah. troubling. You know, he is the mayor, but he is not the uh, the dictator uh, uh, or the supreme ruler of Brampton. And, you know, the council meeting shouldn't have been canceled, and he should have been there. And he, uh, you know, I, I saw he did some media, and I'll give him credit for that, because I think, you know, he also needs to, just like the party needs to be uh, talking and, and answering questions or preempting questions, frankly. Uh, so does Mayor Brown. But, you know, canceling council with some of the allegations that are going on at Brampton City Hall right now. And there's the uh, independent newspaper out there, The Pointer, which has covered a lot of this. It's online. Uh, uh, you know, I think yeah, also very troubling. So I, I think there's a, a bit of stink on both sides here. Yeah, I mean, he he explained that. He said that uh, the the, the councillors and deputy mayors who are against uh, him want to bring in somebody improperly elected to replace uh, the councillor who is now an MPP, and uh, that if they did that, anything decided would be invalid. I mean, it just sounds like a a, a really nasty mess, Bob. Yeah, next to Hamilton, I think Brampton has uh, one of the most dysfunctional uh, uh, <laughs> uh, city halls uh, around and has for a long period of time. In fairness to Mayor Brown on this, the last four mayors of uh, of Brampton have been accused of this and that and the next thing. One uh, was subject to a savage attack by the Toronto Star, Susan Fennell, uh, most of which, uh, if not entirely, she was cleared of. So uh, I would take uh, local Brampton uh, politics with a grain of salt. Uh, I think uh, on the surface of it, uh, Mayor Brown has done a pretty good job for Brampton from what I can see uh, from an economic development perspective, getting a university or part of a university up and running there on the issue of health care. I think he's managed to keep his tax bill pretty low, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I think he's done a relatively good job as a mayor. You can attack him on uh, other issues and you can attack him in a conservative race. I'll leave that up to conservatives to do that. But uh, on his Brampton record, I think is uh, is pretty decent. Well, and uh, very interesting that when Doug Ford was running, he uh, had a lot of uh, very unpleasant things to say about Patrick Brown, but they have made friends and worked together just fine, which is Kind of interesting. Uh, let's go to Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. I'm a card-carrying uh, conservative, and uh, there just seems to be scandal wherever this man goes. You know, from the housing deal that he had going on up there in Barrie, um, he was caught the secret campaign office, city staff on uh, city time working in his office. He's denied I per- that. Well, just, I, personally I'm believe, just... I personally believe he was put there 
just to stir up trouble for the Conservatives. So I couldn't be happier that he's gone. Okay, Bill. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks. John McCutishan, I guess, um, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, it, again, you have an office uh, for a campaign, and campaign people work in it, and there's nothing secret about that. By the same token, we're talking about a national campaign, so it's not a storefront like you'd find in a, a normal uh, election like we're about to have with the municipal election. So there's nothing secret about it. Uh, so that's ridiculous to begin with. Uh, the accusation uh, is already false about, uh, and I understand uh, uh, other people are dealing with the false accusation about city uh, workers. Um, so look, Brampton, this council, the last four years, it was a 5-5 divide on almost every issue. And at the end of the day, we're going to have an election in October, and the people who've been using the conservative leadership race in Brampton to attack Patrick Brown have been attacking him since the day he was elected. They didn't support him then. They don't support him now. They're not going to support him after the election. The question is, how do each of their voters think they've been doing, and do they think they're part of the problem, and are those councillors going to get reelected? Because many people think uh, their time is up and they should go away because they've been doing a terrible job getting the way of the other councillors. So it's, it's, it couldn't be more divided if you tried. And, uh, you know, uh, the only thing uh, that looks dirtier that in party politics, we wonder, who, did somebody work on behalf of somebody else? There's suspicion. But when you're talking municipal, it's straight up. Those people are working in their own interests and they're not on the same team as the mayor. So they attack the mayor. So just because you attack them doesn't make them credible. Michael Diamond, what happens next and what happens assuming that this uh, disqualification sticks? What happens to all those people uh, that were signed up by the Brown team? Well, look, I mean, I think there's, there's obviously going to be a lot of questions. I think, you know, the, 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 the most important, uh, uh, of the what happens, I think the, at the end of the day, nothing different happens. Pierre Polyev was on track to win this, uh, leadership race in a wallop. Uh, I would have been, I will be shocked, uh, in either scenario with Mr. Brown on the ballot or, or not, uh, which he won't be, uh, uh, that Mr. Polyev would not win this on the first ballot with getting 50% plus one of points. It's just, it's a, he has a hugely, he has a huge advantage and outsold all of his uh, opponents uh, by massive numbers. So uh, I don't think it will have a material impact on the end result uh, of the race. Uh, you know, if you look at the 2017 Conservative Party of Canada uh, uh, leadership race, Kevin O'Leary exited uh, the race and endorsed Maxime Bernier and voter turnout amongst uh, the O'Leary uh, sold memberships, which was a significant pool, was uh, dismal and it didn't get the job done for Bernier. So I think, you know, if, if uh, Mayor Brown is to endorse Mr. Charest or one of the other candidates. You know, it won't be Pierre Polyev if he's going to do an endorsement. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't think those coattails would uh, translate. So I, I uh, imagine there'll be some folks requesting refunds and the party will have to decide what they're doing with that. But uh, beyond that, I don't, uh, I don't think there's going to be a material impact on the trajectory of the race. Bob Richardson, your uh, final thoughts on this? Well, I hope uh, they get their act together and that there is a degree of due process here. Um, that they're, uh, I think they at the very least should have a spokesperson out who answers questions, uh, which has not happened to date. Uh, and I think uh, Mr. Brown and uh, the other candidates in the race for that matter are owed some transparency here. 
and some answers. And I think the Conservative Party needs to do that sooner rather than later. John McIntyre, last word to you. Uh, the reality is that uh, with the uh, close of memberships, Patrick Brown, as we now know from those who've seen the list and have uh, done some analysis, that uh, Pierre's uh, prohibitive uh, front-runner status day one has fallen, and he's not today. He is not supported by a majority of the members of the party. He's not supported by five of six candidates. And that uh, hopefully justice will prevail both for Mr. Brown and uh, for the party with a, uh, a good democratically elected leader. Okay, thank you so much, John McIntyre, Michael Diamond, and Bob Richardson. And uh, a program note, uh, we'll talk to Patrick Brown on the show tomorrow. Uh, thanks to you all, and uh, we're going to take a break. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Revving engines on modified vehicles, horn honking, leaf blowers and construction. It all adds up to the second most harmful exposure we face, and that is noise pollution. The World Health Organization's noise guidelines recommend 45 decibels for sleeping. Toronto Public Health found that most, 93% of residents are trying to sleep in environments Above that, and 43% dealing with readings above 55 decibels, and that's a reading uh, that has been found to increase the risk of heart attacks, among other problems. So noise is definitely a hazard to our health. City Hall is reviewing noise directives today, and advocates say there is a lot they can do. Uh, people, I would like to hear from you. Uh, what do you uh, suffer with noise or are you okay with the noise? What kind of noise do you have to deal with and what would you like to be done about it? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Councillor Shelley Carroll, Ward 17, Don Valley North, and a member of the Economic and Community Development Committee, Harold Smith, director of the Lytton Park Residents Association, and Toro Yamo, assistant professor of geography and environmental studies at Toronto Metropolitan University. Everyone, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Hello. Hello, Libby. Shelley, Thank you. let's begin with you. Uh, where is this at at council? Well, it will be added to council now. We've uh, finished the uh, uh, considering it as economic development, and it goes to council with uh, much stronger recommendations that, than than staff had had intended. Staff seemed to be, uh, you know, really reluctant to go down the road of of banning uh, uh, two stroke gas powered leaf blowers in 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 uh, um, uh, in alternative to the uh, to the electric battery and much quieter uh, equipment. They say it would be difficult to enforce, but uh, this is purely an issue of decibel levels for some people. Uh, for some, it's the environmental poison. For some, it's just the noise. But either way, um, toxic lawn equipment is is really going the way of the dodo bird. And, and people were, were lining up to tell us that in committee this morning. And so the recommendation is going to council. 
will be stronger and leaning much more quickly towards a ban than, than what staff recommended first thing this morning. What about other things like uh, the revving engines? What about stiffer penalties? Uh, advocates are saying that there are noise cameras there are th- that can be measured and, and that there should be uh, very stiff fines. I mean, that's probably a provincial thing, but it does council have a view on that, Shelley? It, it is it is a, a very much a, um, a tied to some provincial laws, but Mayor Tory sent word. Uh, you'll see some motions on this that uh, uh, Chair Thompson moved on his behalf. Mayor Tory sent some motions to committee, and that always sends a pretty strong message. Staff, we want you to go harder on this. And and what Mayor Tory's done is is request that the Toronto Police Service get back involved and explore equipping and more training for Toronto Police Traffic Services so that they can start to look at sound level meters to support their enforcement for excessive motor vehicle noise. And and Toronto Police are doing this work. I've I've been coming up the parkway in the middle of the day myself when I see them having pulled aside one of those souped-up little uh, motorbikes, uh, those lean-forward motorbikes that people tend to alter and make as loud as possible, and and they've been pulled over for that reason. Uh, But we really need to do more there because those are the the groups, those groups of motorbike riders that tool around all night in the wee small hours, weaving in and out of traffic on our highway system, and really just waking up the dead. It's, it's, (laughs) It's out of control. The dead probably wouldn't mind being woken up. (laughs) Harold Smith, uh, you have been fighting this for a long time. That's right. I've been uh, specifically working on, you know, getting the city to enact strong regulations that severely limit the amount of noise from mechanized gardening, and in particular leaf blowers, which are used quite unnecessarily and have cross-purposes with um, Toronto's pollinator protection policy. Um, and uh, do you expect any action? I mean, we've just heard Shelley Carroll say that uh, staff is reluctant, and I know that when it's being discussed, it's with a long kind of phase-in period so that it's not fair to people who bought this equipment. Uh, is that good enough for you, Harold? Uh, I don't. I don't think it is. Staff, um, specifically um, Parks and Rec, um, needs. They can't even say when they're going to, uh, you know, completely get rid of gas-powered equipment. And it's a bit unfair to compare them to the to the average um, independent contractor. Uh, Parks and Rec is a very complex organization with. I don't know how many hundreds of staff members they have, but the, the, you know, an independent landscaper, I don't know how many employees they have, but it can't be more than 10. Um, and they can, they can, you know, certainly switch to battery operated equipment. Certainly the warning has been, you know, sounded about phasing this out. It's commercially available. And, um, you know, the example of, you know, over 200 cities in the U.S. or jurisdictions. The fifth largest economy, California, is banning the sale of gas-powered equipment in 2024. So I think that uh, council should be 
at the very least having a seasonal ban on on gas powered meat blowers so people don't have don't blow grass clippings off their lawn and don't blow nutrients out of their flower beds and, and don't kill insects that are living beneficial insects uh, living in in flower beds um, and you know native bees that are living underground they you know the, the insect populations are declining severely and part of the reason is of the the intense industrialization um, and the pollutants that uh, this uh, gardening equipment causes. I mean, there's also pesticide use in the states, et cetera, et cetera. Tom Moyamo, um, is is it uh, a good plan to concentrate on leaf blowers? What about all the other irritants? So, sorry, I just need to correct you. My name is Tor, not not Tom. But, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no problem. Sorry. Um, I think any progress or you know any effort to, to reduce it is good. Uh, leaf blowers is... Uh, Definitely something that's I've seen come up a lot in, in complaints to the city, and it's uh, quite annoying for a lot of people, uh, I'm sure. And I know they're loud, they're loud, but they're also not my biggest concern. They're you know they're limited seasonally and uh, to to daytime. I don't think a lot of landscaping goes on in the middle of the night, so I'm more concerned with a bigger public health impact noise uh, exposures that, that go across the city. And probably it more often happens in neighborhoods where uh, you don't see a lot of leaf blowers. There's not, uh, you know, that that kind of landscaping maintenance uh, price going on in, in lower income neighborhoods along the highways, for example, and really busy thoroughfares. So I, I come at it from a bit of a different perspective. I think a lot of what's being talked about um, here with both, uh, like, of course, the the modified motorbikes and exhaust systems, uh, as well as in cars, are a huge problem, and that should just be squashed, regulatory, uh, and enforced, there's just really, I don't see why that can't, can't be done. Just make the penalties stiffer and, and make make them go away. Uh, but there's still going to be a big problem remaining after those, you know, individual sort of annoyance uh, factors, I guess, are, are dealt with where a large proportion of the city or population of the city are going to be exposed to excessive traffic noise uh, levels as well as other sources like like HVAC and air conditioners and, and other... Let, let me ask you this, uses. Tor. Yeah. Is this, uh, I mean, has there been an exponential increase in people modifying their vehicles, souping them up, making them noisier? It seems to me there has been, but I don't, I don't know if that's true. Uh, I, I can't tell you that. I don't, I don't know. I don't have enough information or it's not really part of my, my research focuses on traffic noise in, in, in general or environmental noise, uh, more generally. And of course those things contribute, uh, they, they cause very high spikes and sort of peak events. Uh, but fortunately they're, they're not constant. Of course, unfortunately they're, they're very disruptive when, when you do hear them. Uh, but I, I can't tell you if they've increased or not. What we do know is that there's just an increase in exposure because population levels and densities are increasing. So every time someone drives by a neighborhood that now has more people in it, you're you're getting more of an impact. So I suppose it's kind of a moot point if if it's if there's more exhaust pipes modified or not. Uh, there's just still more people being exposed uh, and, and harmed by it.
And and certainly there seems to have been more street racing during the pandemic. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Shelley, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, uh, really, uh, you hate to blame everything on the pandemic, but but the whole social scene around street racing and uh, we I call them the kick-ass motorbikes, the, 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 the kick-ass comic uh, graphic novel series and, and movies kind of uh, led to a lot of the souping up of motorbikes, but street racing in general really... Uh, uh, went supernova during the pandemic. Kids with nothing to do. We had a really dangerous incident right up at the top of my ward near Steeles Avenue uh, over the that first Easter weekend in 2020. And and since that time, it has been a, a terrible problem that goes all the way down to the waterfront because they sort of travel the city in the square in the middle of the night, uh, you know, down the Gardner, up to 427, across, and back down again, such that it it really it creates a, a huge negative impact for, for such a large swath of the city. And so we got to tackle it on, on all fronts. And, and because this problem was growing before the pandemic, the OPP was already focused on it. The Toronto uh, uh, Police Service had just joined a task force with the uh, uh, York Regional Police Service. And now there's a basically a GTHA-wide uh, team of law enforcement looking at cracking down on it because of the you know the 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 danger of it that that they they really place place roadways in danger when they're they're you know Texas lane changing right through the middle of traffic because uh, there there are still some cars on the road but the souping up of the uh, the the automobiles around noise levels really does add to it all and so. Uh, that's why the the mayor said he wants to see uh, more blitzes. So we're requesting the Toronto Police to consider more blitzes and also buying more equipment so that even during the day, a vehicle just sitting idling in a shopping mall, when it's easy to pull them aside and say, what on earth have you done to that automobile? I just measure, measured your decibel level. And... Uh, uh, does at that point it doesn't even need to be a moving violation. You've you've simply altered your car oh. to uh, take it beyond livable noise levels, and and you could you could deliver the 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 fine on the infraction right then and there. Okay, uh, we've got to take a break. I see the phone lines are filling up on the other side of it. We'll take your calls and we'll have more from our panel on noise directives and what the city might be doing about it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about noise pollution and what the city of Toronto may be doing about it. It's going before council. There's been a staff report on it and... Our lines are filling up on this topic, so let us take a couple of calls. Let's begin with Rudy in Toronto. Hi, Rudy. Hi, Libby. Yes, I, I didn't catch the beginning of this segment, so I don't know if you've uh, been talking about car horns, uh, but uh, the uh, 
there are people that use their horns unnecessarily when it's not an emergency, and then they, they lean on them for, for several seconds. And it also seems that, that uh, manufacturers have been making the newer cars with horns that are of higher decibel, which is more irritating to the ears. And uh, hearing a, a horn suddenly go off in a car, it's suddenly that, that's more, more irritating than, uh, than listening to leaf blowers for, for uh, 10 minutes or so. Okay. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's more irritating, equally irritating. Rudy, thanks for that. That's definitely on the list of things that are annoying. Uh, Ed in Burlington. Hi, Ed. Yes. Um, I have two, two complaints. One is about the leaf blowers, and the other one is about the concrete grinding. The concrete grinding, it, it puts a lot of dust out, and they don't try to mitigate the dust. It's all over the place. I, I already asked them to use the wet method, and they they don't want to use it. But it's, it is really um, a pollution for noise and also for the dust. Well, you, there's so much construction happening that uh, that's that's another big part of it. Ed, thanks for your call. Bye. Bye. And we've got James in the GTA. Hello, James. Hello. Go ahead. I live. 400 and the 401 um, airplane noise is constant 6:30 a.m. till almost 1 a.m. Uh, uh, a large airplane is 140 decibels. They're apparently around 1,400 feet above my house. Um, uh, were they there when you got the house? Did you know about that you were close? Seven years ago, I moved in here. The DC tens would come. My come over it's the frequency um every 60 to 90 seconds i can see how that'll be annoying thanks for your call james um so um some people say well hey people did you uh, buy a place where that was close to a highway or close to an airport um let's talk a little bit about uh, the kind of jeopardy that that is putting these people in uh tor yeah, no, uh, a lot of those comments can can be discussed at length. You know, they really do describe uh, how intricate and complicated this problem is. Even some of the stuff about vehicles, you know, that needs to go like right to the federal government about regulation on what types of and levels of noise that are allowed to be produced. But uh, back to the question about which really I think is a, it's an issue of environmental justice and and you know people making that argument that, well, you, you bought a place next to the airport, so that's your problem. I, I, I don't think that's a good argument. You know, we should all have uh, access to and all have uh, the right to, to a healthy uh, environment. And it's, it's a public health issue and a, and a joint responsibility to make sure that it's not an unfair exposure or distribution of any pollutant. But in, 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 of course, I concern myself more with, with noise pollution and uh, Toronto does have a significant problem in, in that uh, respect. I, I showed a bit of that in, in the report we did for the city of Toronto with um, Toronto Public Health that you know, low-income areas are much more likely to be, be exposed to uh, levels that ex- exceed thresholds set by the WHO. And I think we need to also emphasize that these aren't just levels at which people become annoyed. We, we know that at 55 decibels and up, there's significant chronic health outcome uh, outcomes that start happening, so increased risks of heart attacks and, and 
uh, other cardiovascular complications, and now we're seeing more evidence for diabetes and strokes too. So I'm, you know, it sounds like I'm scaremongering maybe, but you know, this is just a fact. These are the facts, and the evidence has now become very, very strong. So it's not really just a sort of deal with the annoyance. You bought a place there. This is a public health concern that has you know ramifications for you know costs on our healthcare you know down the road as well. So it's it's a really big big issue that needs to be addressed from from different angles. Harold Smith, um, are those other things a concern for your residents? Well, air, airplane noise isn't, you know, it, it's not a concern that's brought up. <clears throat> Loud cars are a concern for those who are living near Young Street. Um, so, you know, I mean, even even air conditioners, even air conditioners, are are a source of a problem because you know sound sound travels and houses are relatively close together. Um, so, but you know, landscape noise—it's it's not only leaf blowers; it's two-stroke gas engines, which are particularly noisy, and they include equipment used by construction companies. You know, from from saws to drills and temporary generators, and not only the noise; th- these are the dirtiest pieces of equipment that are engines that are around. That's that's um, and and um, you know, it the, the, the doesn't seem to be much in the uh, energy environments uh, report on the on um, on that issue kicked it upstairs to the federal government where I don't think it's going to move very quickly. It's unfortunate. You know, I have heard, Shelley Carroll, about some apps that are supposed to mitigate things uh, by providing white noise that would presumably turn out other noise. Have, have you heard uh, about anything like that? Or are, are people turning to those, I guess, uh, measures? These exist, and I know that some people are using them as, as sleep aids, but they, they really only, you know, they, the, the overall ambient noise, they, they sort of provide a, a counterbalance to that. And so you begin to focus in on a, another noise. But the noises that we get complaints about are, are things, the reason people are complaining about the vehicle noise is that it's over and above the ambient noise. That's why we, we do things by decibel level. When you get up to a range where it comes in suddenly and is jarring and wakes you up. So, you know, you might be using that white noise machine to sleep because there's a giant air conditioner in the shopping plaza behind your house and, and you're, you, you use your own app and you have your own hum that you meditate on and you forget that air conditioner. But when uh, a group of 10 street racers comes barreling through, that's jarring and the, and the app is not going to help you with that. Which is which is why you find people focusing on it now. Um, the the same is true of of airplane plane noise. Uh, it, it has grown over time. Yes, there's a sign in the neighborhood where you go to buy your house. This is an, uh, you're in the airplane zone. But um, with the increase in traffic, when the with the increase in in numbers of airlines that get to use Pearson, and where they're going, the flight paths they choose. Um, some people never expected to be getting excessive airplane noise and, and having it affect their health. GTA, the, the Greater Toronto Airport Authority, the GTAA, has 
has done a lot of, of community visits and work to try and, and work with traffic controllers to, to gently alter the flight paths. There's, there's a big one of flights that come up from the States and they, they go in a big arc around the east end of the city and then come in, uh, flying westbound to get, to get in to do one, uh, 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 runway. And then there's, there's a similar one that, that goes to the west and comes in from that direction. They gently alter the, the, by just a few degrees that arc from time to time so that they give relief to a neighborhood and it moves on to another to try and balance out the health impacts. But we do live in this huge urban area. And so finding strategies to mitigate noise. What are your windows like? Have you got heavy drapes? Things like that to, to, so that you can create nighttime and create quiet in your own home is something we have to do, but it, it's harder and harder to do in some neighborhoods. And, and of course, retrofitting your home in, in the lower income neighborhoods is, is not possible. And so we, we do have to take steps municipally and provincially to try and mitigate the, some of the, the negative effects. We are uh, just about out of time. Shelley, I'm going to give the last 20 seconds to you. What can we expect to come out of council? Well, I think, uh, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a challenge for staff, but they're going to get a wake up call from council because really the last four to five years, we have all had more from these specific things, the, this big toxic lawn equip, equipment and the retrofit of cars. There have been a barrage of complaints and they, they don't go into 311 with a 20 minute wait list. They just come straight to counselors. And so you're going to see council wanting to take these actions and indeed Mayor Tory, uh, stepping up police enforcement of these actions through his role in the police board. Because I think council and, and the community are, are, are more vocal and, and out ahead of staff on this. This is, it's new to ask them to take a lot of actions, but they've got to take them. Okay, and we are totally out of time. Thank you so much, Toroyano, Harold Smith, and Councillor Shelley Carroll. Thanks, Libby. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.